and good morning. I, I love that song. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs because it is a, a, a scriptural truth, a gospel truth, that it is well with our soul, that no matter what comes against us, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, it is, uh, we can proudly and boldly proclaim that it is well with our soul. And it's, it, it, it's a song that, that beautifully matches emotions to theology, right? Uh, that ties together uh, what we feel uh, with the truth of God's word, because uh, singing and when we worship, it's not just about proclaiming the right words, proclaiming the right theology. It's really about pouring all of ourselves into the song. It's about tying the the song not just to the spiritual truths, but to our emotional reality as well. And we can boldly and proudly proclaim that it is well with our souls. We can feel that deep in the very core of who we are as we proclaim those truths. And so I love that song. I love worshiping together with all of you and singing that out loud. And it is well with our souls. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to continue our series to Jerusalem as we're looking through the book of Acts. Specifically, in our case, we're looking through the first part of the book of Acts. We'll take a break and come back to it afterwards. But we are looking at what uh, what God has called us to be and what called, God has called us to do as a local church, what, what God has called us to look like as a body of believers. And so we're looking through the book of Acts because by Acts, we see the, the birth, the foundation of the, uh, the church, and then the rapid expansion of the early church. So we can see specifically at the beginning of the book of Acts what happens when the Holy Spirit empowers and mobilizes the church to go encounter a city. Right, we see the Holy Spirit empower and mobilize his church into the city of Jerusalem. And so that's what we're going to see uh, throughout the early part of the book of Acts. We're going to pick back up uh, the story this morning uh, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Uh, Luke, who's writing, he writes this in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field, and all of his bowels gushed out, that's in the Bible, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be none, no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. At first, when I look at this text, when I got into it, I was really excited about the book of Acts. I was really excited to get into the birth of the early church and, and the rapid expansion of the early church. And I get to this text, and our very second week, into the series, and it seems random. It seems uh, a little uh, just randomly placed in the passage. It's not that Matthias becomes some incredible figure in the book of Acts. He's, he's not mentioned again. And so this 
this one passage seems a little random and out of place and, and, and seems difficult, but what we see in this text is a beautiful truth that Luke, uh, and once we get into it, Luke is trying to remind us and trying to show us about the church. And so uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get into, the, into this passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you that because of Jesus, it is well with our souls. I thank you that because of the gospel, no matter what comes against us, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, God, we can boldly and proudly proclaim that we are, we are great and as well with our souls. Because we have an eternal relationship with the God who created all things. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the brokenness and the hurt in our world, that you would give us a, a compassion for the people of Haiti, you would give us a, a, a love and a compassion for those in Afghanistan, you would give us a heart and a passion for the Christians who are uh, just starting to experience intense persecution in Afghanistan. God, you would give us eyes to see the brokenness and the hurt in the world around us. And God, that that, that brokenness, that, that hurt would mobilize us to go share the gospel, to bring the peace of an eternal life with you to the world. God, that we would go around the world and bring with us the message of the gospel, that our, our feet would go, our hands would go, and we would proclaim the glorious good news that there is life eternal in Jesus, that no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, you can have peace and it can be well with your soul. God, I pray you would give us a, a generosity. You would give us a, 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 a hands and feet and a selflessness to go prove with our actions that the gospel is real, that life change happens. And God, that you would give us a boldness to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. Because it is well with our soul. Give us a, a heart and a longing for it to be well with the souls around us as well. It's the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, when I was in college, uh, my professors loved group projects. And I don't know why they loved group projects other than the fact that I think they hated us. Um, because if you know anything about group projects, you know they are the worst. Uh, especially, group, especially group presentations. Um, I don't know um, if you have seen a group presentation uh, recently or if you've witnessed one, but they are the most boring presentations than you could ever imagine, right? So uh, invariably, this is what happens. Let's say a group of five gets up, and they go one at a time. First person gets up, and they say, my name is so-and-so. They give their little spiel. And then they give this really canned transition that is really blocky, uh, boxy, and, 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 and not very smooth. They say something like, well, now my, my colleague so-and-so is going to share a little bit about our accounting practices. And then they, they've made a PowerPoint, so they hand the clicker off to the next person, and they come up, and they always say, thank you, so-and-so. And then they turn to look at the screen like they didn't know what was on it and give their part of the presentation. And that happens person after person after person until the presentation's over. And everybody in the audience is trying not to fall asleep because the only reason you're there is because you have to give a presentation after them, right? So it's the, it, is, it is the worst. Group presentations are boring. They're awful. My freshman year at A&M, we had uh, an introductory business class, and we were given a, a group presentation. There were six of us lumped together into a presentation, and we decided we didn't want to do that. Right? We, didn't, we didn't want to be super boring and do the, uh, that canned uh, approach to presentations that everybody did, and so what we decided to do was to pair off. Uh, we decided to, to group up in, in groups of two, and then the two of us would present at one time. We would dialogue, make it a little more dynamic, and then the two of us would 
would hand off to another pair, uh, and it worked. It was a little more dynamic. It was a little more. Uh, it was a little more fun. It's not. It's not groundbreaking. We weren't going to get famous from our presentation, but it was a little bit better than some of the others. Um, the problem is uh, that only really works. That whole pairing only really works if all six of you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and in our group of six, five of us knew what we were talking about. Uh, one person in our group uh, never showed up in our our meetings to put the presentation together. Uh, well, that's not true. They showed up one time, and the one time that they showed up, they were late and then sat on their phone the whole time in the corner while we put the presentation together. So, so five of us knew exactly what was going on. One of us, not so much. And if you know, uh, you may have already guessed it uh, by uh, just stories that I've told or, or interacting with me, but I am a, an achiever personality. I want to I wanna, I wanna accomplish things. I want to I wanna, I wanna win. Uh, and so my grades mattered a lot uh, to me, and so uh, and they mattered a lot to my other four group members who paid attention and, and tried to do re uh, a really good job. And so we were terrified that this one person was going to derail our entire assignment. Like we were we were scared to death that this one person, by their laziness and, and desire to not pitch in, that this one person would torpedo our grade as a group. The disciples in the beginning of the book of Acts, were just commissioned by Jesus to go be witnesses to the world about the resurrection of Jesus. They were, they were commissioned to go out and to reach lost people with the gospel. And, and what you see is, is Jesus talk, uh, telling the disciples that they will have the Holy Spirit come upon them and they will be uh, brought together and uh, the church will be born. Right? The, the body of Christ, not just a local Christian organization, but the, the universal global body of Christ, the church would be born when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they, they are now waiting for that to happen. Right? These disciples are all huddled in a room. There's about 120 of them here in this room. And they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. They're waiting for that glorious, beautiful day that the Holy Spirit comes upon them and the church will be born. Uh, and they're waiting and hoping and praying for that day. But they also can't help but realize and notice that, that one of them is missing. You see, God's design for his church, is that they would have 12 apostles as the foundation for the church. And we can look at the New Testament, we can see that uh, Jesus is the true foundation for the church, right? Jesus is the reason the church is brought together. Faith in Jesus is the one thing that unites all of us, so Jesus is the foundation of the church. But the way that, that God designed his church is that 12 apostles would serve as the foundation for everything that the church did, that their witness to what Jesus said, their witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, their teaching, their preaching, and their authority would serve as the bedrock, the foundation that would launch the church into everything that they did and said in the future, that those 12 apostles would serve as the basis. It correlates well with the 12 tribes of Israel uh, back in the Old Testament, and that there's this transition from the 12 tribes of Israel to these 12 apostles serving as the foundation for the church. That was God's design. That's why Jesus brought together specifically 12 disciples. When he had more disciples than that, there weren't just 12, but they, he had these 12 in a special inner circle because that was God's design for the church, was to build it upon 12 apostles. That's why Paul can say in his writings in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the foundation of the church, but he can also say later in one of his writings that the apostles the 12 apostles are the foundation of the church with Jesus being the chief cornerstone because the way we know about Jesus, the way that we can understand his teachings and his life and his death and his resurrection and, and the interpretation of those events is from the teachings of the apostles. 
So there were supposed to be 12 apostles at the start of the church, at the foundation of the church. And here they are, right on the verge of that beautiful, glorious day when the church will be born, when the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and they're doing the math, and they're counting 9, 10, 11. They're one short. They're missing Judas Iscariot. And if you're the disciples, you're these 11 apostles, you're probably worried that this one guy threatens to derail everything. This one guy's betrayal, this one guy's abandonment of Jesus threatens to derail everything that Jesus was going to build. It threatens to derail the entire work of the church. There are supposed to be 12 apostles, not 11, but one of them disobeyed God and betrayed Jesus. One of them went against, uh, went against Christ, and so now there are only 11 apostles. You, you're wondering if the church is going to be flawed from the start, if this one guy threatens to derail everything that's going to happen with the future church. And it's at that point that Peter stands up and he says in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So what he does first is he recounts the reason that they're missing one. Right? He, he highlights the fact that there are only 11 of them for a reason, and the reason was that Judas betrayed Jesus. The reason is that Judas turned away from, we see later in the text, turned away from the ministry of an apostle, and he betrayed Jesus. We don't know much about Judas' story. We don't really have a good insight into the beginning of his story, uh, the be why he followed Jesus in the first place. We really don't know much about it, but we do know that he was with the other, uh, the other 11 disciples, was in this close circle with Jesus. And so Judas lived his, lived his life. He lived several years following Jesus. He witnessed the, the life of Jesus. He witnessed his teachings. He witnessed the miracles that Jesus taught. He was, he was closely related to Jesus. He was closely surrounding Jesus. And he followed after Jesus. He, he learned of his teachings. He witnessed the miracles. In fact, he performed miracles himself. So he had all of these wonderful, incredible encounters with Jesus. And we don't know if, if at any point in his ministry, if at any point in the life of Jesus, he really, uh, Judas really did think that Jesus was the Christ. Like, it's, it's possible to believe that at any point in the ministry, G Judas was caught up in, in the incredible um, emotional moments of what was happening. He was caught up in, in the beautiful teachings of Jesus. He was caught up in, in just the insightful uh, teachings that Jesus was throwing out there. He was caught up in the miracles. He was caught up in, in all the great moments. It was very likely that Peter, uh, excuse me, that Judas at some point really did follow Jesus. That he, he really did see Jesus as this Messiah figure. He really did see Jesus as this guy to be followed, this, this guy that, that, that could teach him and he could learn from him. He, he probably got caught up in those highs, those emotional moments. Uh, Judas himself performed miracles. And so you can imagine a guy who's walking with Jesus, who's, who's in close fellowship with his 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and he is, he is living the same life that they're living. He's doing the same things that they're doing. He's listening to the same teachings. He's seeing the same miracles. He's eating the bread that Jesus is miraculously bringing about. Like he's eating the fish that Jesus just, just brings about miraculously. He's seeing all of those miracles, and he is performing those miracles, doing an incredible work for God in the world, he is a part of all of that. He's experiencing all of that. We can see the, the joy and, and the life that he likely experienced in those moments. But the problem with Judas 
And what we know is that he, couldn't, he never gave up his idol, which was money. And he never got around to worshiping Jesus as Lord, worshiping Jesus as, the, as God, because he never gave up money as his, as his God. See, Judas, whatever he did in his life was probably really good with money, and so they gave him charge over the treasury of Jesus' ministry. The money that went in to the ministry of Jesus to, to feed Jesus and his disciples, to house them, to, to perform the work of the ministry that they were doing, that, that offering box, they gave Judas charge of it, and Judas was stealing from the offering box throughout Jesus' ministry. He's, he's sitting there viewing and listening to and watching the ministry of Jesus unfold right before his eyes. He's participating in the miracles, and at the same time, he's stealing money from the ministry because he couldn't give up his idol of money. We see later on that the religious leaders were after Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And Judas made the choice. Am I going to worship Jesus as God, or am I going to worship money? And he walked into the temple, and he, he approached the religious leaders and said, how much money would it take for me to betray Jesus? How much money would you give me to hand Jesus over to you? And they told him, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. So that night, he took the silver. The night of the, the Last Supper, he got up from the table. This is the, the Last Supper. Jesus washed his feet. Jesus fed them. Jesus taught them. He just told them about this, the blood that he was going to pour out for them, the, the body that he was going to be broken for them. The, the, this pinnacle moment that we talk about, this, this emotional experience with Jesus, he was part of that, and he got up from the table, and he walked to the chief priests, he walked to the religious leaders, and he said, tonight's the night. And he takes the money, and he leads the religious leaders and a Roman guard to go approach Jesus. He walks up to Jesus in a garden, he hugs him, he kisses him, and that was the signal that this is the guy that you're supposed to arrest. And so for 30 pieces of silver, Judas gave up Jesus Christ. The guy who walked with Jesus, the guy who had these emotional experiences with Jesus, the guy who, who performed these miracles with Jesus and saw miracles performed, the guy who probably at one point or another really did think that this guy was the Messiah, that this guy could be the Christ, couldn't give up his God of money. And he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, was allotted his share in this ministry. He chose to betray Jesus, to give up the ministry of an apostleship. He, was, he chose to give up the opportunity to become one of those 12 apostles that serve as the, the foundation, the pillars of the church of God. He chose to give all of that up for 30 pieces of silver, because he couldn't give up his God of money. But now the other 11 are wondering, where's the 12th? <laughs> right? The, the God's design for the church is that there would be 12 apostles, but, but Judas betrayed Jesus. So what do we do? Where, where, where is our 12th apostle? If the church is going to start any day now, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon us, how do we grow? How do we expand as the church if we're on such a shaky footing that we don't even have the 12 apostles that God called? But we see in verse 16, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. 
This was God's plan all along. It was always part of God's plan that Judas would betray Jesus. Uh, Jesus mentions this throughout his ministry. Uh, he talks about his disciples. He talks about the 12 that he had chosen. He mentions at one point, uh, didn't I choose you 12, but one of you is a devil. Like, he, he mentions that throughout his ministry, that one of these 12 that is with him is going to betray him. He knows it. He says later on, he says, I, I'm going to be given up. I'm going to die, but woe to him by whose hand I'm given up. So, so it wasn't shocking to God that Judas betrayed Jesus. It, wasn't, it didn't blow God's mind or rock God's world that Judas, one of those 12 disciples, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He knew it was coming. It was always part of God's plan. And what we see in verse 18 is that God dealt with him. And we see in 18, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. So this, this has all of the marks of divine retribution. So Judas takes the money, and he's disgusted with himself. He recognizes that what he did was, was unpardonable, uh, that, that he had just betrayed Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver, and he still couldn't get around to worshiping Jesus as God. He still never got his mind around giving up money as his idol and worshiping Jesus, but he took the money, disgusted it with himself, he threw it into the temple, and Matthew says he went and hung himself. Well, the, the priest got that money and said, we can't put this back in the offering box. We can't use this for ministry. This is our, our money that we use to kill Jesus, right? It's uh, kind of a little two-faced to put it back in the, the box and use it uh, for ministry. And so they decided to buy the field that Judas died on uh, with that money. And we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened between what Matthew describes and what Luke describes here in Acts, but, uh, but either the branch broke that he hung himself on and he hit the ground and his bowels gushed out when he hit sharp rocks, or he, he died by hanging and, uh, and decomposed, and when he fell off, he hit the ground and his bowels gushed out. So we, we don't have uh, very much information at all about what, how those two events happened, uh, but we do know that, Jesus, that Judas died on that field, or died hanging in that field, and the end result is that Judas's body lay prostrate in the field of blood with his intestines just gushing out. I have a very weak stomach. It's not a good imagery. I'm going to move on. But, uh, but that's, that's what happens to Judas. And, and that has, like I said, all the marks of divine retribution. We see this a few times in the book of Acts. We'll, we'll get to these later on. But we see like Ananias and Sapphira who just dropped dead before Peter because they lied to the church. And we see King Herod just dropped dead with worms eating him from the inside out because he was prideful and arrogant and boastful as he was proclaiming a, a, a message. And so we see, we see these instances in the book of Acts of divine retribution, that God is, is taking these guys out, that God is, is giving these guys what they deserve. Judas gets what he deserves from God. It doesn't shock God that Judas betrays Jesus, and then God takes care of it. God knows that it's going to happen. God knows that Judas is going to pay, betray Jesus, and then he takes care of Judas. Judas is out of the picture. It's not like they have 12 apostles that are just trying to figure out what to do with Judas. Judas is gone. God has taken care of of Judas, and now they're left with 11 because Judas is dead. But what we see in this beautiful imagery, not uh, of Judas's death, but the rest of the imagery, and, and verse 20, it is written in the book of Psalms, 
May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. What we see is that it was always part of God's plan that Judas would not be one of the 12 apostles. In the book of Psalms, where this comes from, King David prophesies a thousand years before Judas that his camp will become desolate, that Judas will die by divine retribution because of his rebellion against God and because he betrayed Jesus for silver. So God wasn't shaken by this disruptive force. God wasn't shaken by Judas betraying Jesus. It didn't rock God's world. It didn't, it didn't threaten the church because God always knew it was going to happen. And God was always in control the whole time. I mean, we deal with things as a local church that threaten to derail everything. We, we deal with impersonal forces like, I don't know, a global pandemic that threatens to derail everything that we do as a church. We deal with personal forces like, like people who betray, people who contribute to a, a toxic culture. We deal, with, we deal with personal and impersonal forces that come against a local church and threaten to derail everything that God has planned for us. But when those things come against the church, they're not outside of God's view. Like they, they don't shock God. He knows they're coming. And he is in control the whole time. If Judas's betrayal of Jesus didn't shock God and he was in control that whole time, then whatever we face, whatever comes against us, whatever threatens to derail the church, God is still in control. Nothing can come against us that doesn't shock that, that nothing can come against us, excuse me, that shocks God. Nothing can come against us that's going to, to take God out of his element. God is still in control of his church. And so he takes care of Judas, uh, and he, 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 we see that God is in control, but, but that doesn't fix the fact that they're still at 11. Right? God took care of Judas. It was always his plan that Judas would rebel. And, and betray Jesus because somebody had to do it because Jesus had to die. But that doesn't fix the fact that God's design for the church was 12 apostles. We see later on in Acts a 13th apostle for a very specific reason. But, but God's foundation for the church was 12 apostles, and there were only 11. So great, God is in control. God, God knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus. God, God understood all of that. And he took care of Judas, but there's still only 11 apostles. But we see, uh, we see in verse 20, not only was it predicted and prophesied a thousand years before that Judas would die, that his camp would be made desolate, and that there would be no one to dwell in it, but we see a thousand years before King David prophesied, let another take his office. A thousand years before King David prophesied that Judas would have to be replaced that a replacement would be found for Judas. But his replacement had to meet some really specific qualifications. We see in verse 21. One of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So in order to be one of those 12 apostles, you had to meet a very specific set of qualifications. In order to be one of those 12 apostles, you had to have been with Jesus his entire ministry. You had to have seen and listened to and heard the teachings of Jesus from the moment of John's baptism to, uh, to his ascension at the beginning of Acts. 
So you had to be a participant in, you had to witness the teachings of Jesus, you had to, to follow Jesus his whole life, you had to witness his death, and you had to witness his resurrection. Because, again, those 12 apostles serve by their preaching and their teaching and their authority as the foundation for everything that the church believes and teaches. Like those 12 apostles are the ones that relate to us what Jesus taught and what Jesus, how Jesus lived and that he died and that he rose again. And those 12 apostles are the ones that interpreted those events for the church. And so in order to, to be one of those 12, in order to be one of those people, you had to be an effective witness, you had to be with Jesus his entire ministry. You had to see what and hear what he taught. You had to learn from Jesus and follow Jesus. You had to see that he died. You had to witness his resurrection so that you can boldly proclaim with passion that Jesus is alive. And you can interpret those events. That's a very, very select group of people. It's amazing that there were 12. And it's remarkable that there would be any more. But what we see is that God provided for his church. What we see in verse 23 that they were able to put forward two guys, Joseph called Bersabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. So God provided for his church. When they're worried that, this, the, that Judas's betrayal would derail everything, when Judas's betrayal would, would threaten to leave the church with only 11 apostles in a way that's contrary to God's design, God provided for his church. And he, didn't, he didn't just provide one guy. Right? He provided two guys there in that room who could possibly fill that role of apostle. I mean, if it's just one guy, then Peter stands up there and he says, all right, you're it. Like, you're, you're the one guy we have. You're our only option. That leaves God out of the selection process, right? It's just Peter standing up and choosing a guy. But what God did is he provided more than one. He provided two guys who could fill that role of apostle for his church. And then he selected one of those men to fill the role of apostle. In verse 24, they pray over the men and he says, you, Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they, they pray over these two men. They pray over, Judah, uh, they pray over uh, Joseph and Matthias. And they pray over these two men and they say, God, you know which one of these you've called. You know which one of these two men are going to serve as that 12th apostle. You know which one of these two men can adequately witness for Jesus, can serve as a, and with authority as one of these 12 apostles to fill this very specific role in the early church. You know which one of these two you've called. So God, show us who it is. It says in verse 26 that they cast lots for them. This is a, kind of a fancy way of, they kind of played a lottery. They, they, in a fancy way, they drew names out of a hat. Uh, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, I want to be uh, specific. This is not like a normative practice that the Bible is teaching. Like, I, I want to know God's will for my life. Do I turn left here? Or do I turn right? Then you cast lots. It says left. Okay. Like, that's not, it's not a normative practice. It's not the Bible saying, hey, you need to cast lots for every decision that you make because this is God's way of communicating with you. But in their case, what we are supposed to get out of this text, what we're supposed to get out of that moment is that God selected a, an apostle. It wasn't the disciples arbitrarily choosing someone that fit the bill, but it's God himself providing a 12th apostle and selecting that 12th apostle. 
Because when the disciples were worried that Judas threatened to derail everything, when the disciples were worried that Judas' betrayal threatened to, to minimize and discourage and turn away the ministry that they had planned, that God had planned for them, God himself stepped in. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't caught off guard by Judas' betrayal, but he stepped in and provided a solution. He stepped in and provided a 12th apostle, and he selected the 12th apostle, to fill that role. God provided for his church. And what the disciples understood in that moment is what you and I need to understand today. That if we follow Jesus, we can trust God with our church. That if we follow Jesus as a church, we can trust God with the future of Freedom Fellowship. Now I have to add that, that qualifier there at the beginning. Because we, we can read this and say, see, God will always provide for his church, so we're good. But this is God providing for the, the, the church, <laughs> the foundation that, that the global church is built on. God will always provide, and God will always care for and watch over and protect his global church. But there are plenty of instances in the New Testament of local churches dying. And so there's no guarantee in Scripture that a local church exists and, and continues forever. So I have to add that qualifier in there. If we follow Jesus, if we are a church that makes it our aim and our ambition to follow Jesus with everything that we do, if we organize and orient ourselves towards Jesus, then we can trust God with the future of our church. We can trust God with the future of Freedom Fellowship because God provides for his church. He cares for his church and he wants to see his church grow and thrive. So if we're a church that follows Jesus, we can trust him with our future. Which means, church, we need to be a church that follows Jesus. And we can see uh, from this text and others what that looks like. We can see, number one, that we need to be a church that relies on Scripture. I was kind of going back and forth, uh, wrestling with what the, the main application is from this text. Because one thing that we can see in this passage is that God protected his apostleship. That God... God selected the 12 apostles himself. And what we have in the New Testament is records of the teaching and the preaching and the authority of those apostles, the, the communication about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the interpretation of those events. And so we can trust in and rely on the teaching of the apostles because God chose them, God selected them, God protected them, and he spoke through them. And so we, if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus, we have to listen to and rely on and follow the teachings of the apostles and rest on what they've taught us about Jesus and the interpretations that they've given us. And so we can read the teachings of the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, and we can rely on their teachings as true. And we can apply them to our lives. So if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus, we need to be a church that relies on the word of God. We need to be a church that, that teaches and preaches the word of God on Sunday mornings, that, open up, that opens up scripture and talks about what it means for our lives. It doesn't pull random verses out of context because they sound good, but because we want to open up the word of God and discuss what this passage means for us and what the apostles intended it to mean. And we also need to be a church that individually goes home and studies scripture on our own. That, that loves the word of God, that, that has a passion for knowing and understanding the word of God. We must be a church that relies on scripture, that relies on the word of God if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus. 
We also have to be a church that's united in the gospel. Because a church that is fractured, a church that is divided, a church that is fighting with one another and going in a thousand different directions is not a church that is honoring to Jesus. The reason that we're brought together, the reason that we're part of a church in the first place is because we've all been united and brought together by the gospel. That we are all sinners saved by grace, and so we have to be united in that gospel message. We have to be united in Jesus if we're going to be a church that, that follows him and glorifies God. We have to be a church that grows in Christ's likeness and embodies and looks like Jesus. Which means we can't be a church that tolerates sin. Because a church that, that tolerates sin, a church that tolerates brokenness and, 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 and washes over it like it's not a big deal, is not a church that's following Jesus. We have to be a church that, that is growing to look more like Jesus, that isn't content with where we are in our walk, that isn't content with our sin, that doesn't, that doesn't look at our sin and say, yeah, it's okay, it's God's grace. But we're a church that, that knows that God is calling us to something better. God is calling us to something bigger and greater. And so we need to be a church that is abandoning our sins, a church that is turning away from the things that dishonor God and are following Jesus. And we need to be a church that is encouraging one another and pushing one another to look more like Jesus in our lives so that we collectively, as a body of believers, would look more like Jesus. If we're going to be a church that follows Jesus, we have to look like him and start getting turning away from the sins in our lives and start looking more like Jesus. And if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus, we have to reach the loss of the gospel. As we found out last week that God gave a commission to the church to go witness, to go reach lost people, to go bring the message of the gospel out into our community. And so if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus, we're going to do what Jesus told us to do, and that's to go reach the lost. And if we are short in those areas, if we're short in relying on Scripture or our unity or our Christ-likeness or our evangelism, if we are short in those areas, then we are not a church that is following Jesus. So we need to be a church that is oriented and organizing ourselves to pursue those things, to, to follow after Jesus, because if we do that, if we follow Jesus, we can trust him with the future of our church. I have seen and witnessed churches die. I have preached a little country church not too far from here. They had 10 people. It's a church that at one point was, was the church in their community, the church that at one point was kind of the bedrock of their community. They had a, a wonderful ministry. We're, we're doing incredible things in their community, and they had slowly dwindled and slowly uh, gotten down to where they had 10 people. And I preached to them and, and uh, had a great time, some of the sweetest, greatest people that I've interacted with, and then a few months later, their church closed their doors. So I've seen churches slowly decline and fade into obscurity. And I've seen other churches die because they, uh, they grew rapidly, they expanded quickly, and then just imploded overnight. I think specifically uh, of a church that I'm listening to on a podcast right now about Mars Hill in Seattle. It's a church that, that grew rapidly, that expanded quickly, and then imploded overnight and almost just disappeared. And it died quickly as a megachurch. 
And so I've seen and witnessed churches die and the, the spiritual and emotional trauma that goes with those events. To, to witness a church that you love, to witness a, a body of believers that you enjoy, a, a ministry that you've been a part of, to witness it slowly decline and to fade off into obscurity or to implode overnight and the years of ministry you feel are wasted, the years of ministry you feel have gone away to nothing, you, you feel the emotional and spiritual trauma when the decline and the death of a church. I've seen it. And I know some of you here in the last few years have been feeling a decline in the church. And I've been feeling like, like staying awake at night a few nights and losing some sleep wondering if this church is going to die. And beginning to feel some of that spiritual and emotional trauma. Wondering if that ministry that you've poured your life into, that the ministry that you have called your own, the ministry that you've, you have bought into and poured into is not going to be here anymore one day. If they're even going to be here in a year, five years, or ten years. But as a pastor, I can promise you that if we're a church that follows Jesus, if we're a church that will orient ourselves and organize ourselves to pursue Christ, then we're not just going to survive, but we're going to grow and thrive as a body of believers. And we don't have to worry about being here in a year. We don't have to worry about fitting here in a year. We, have to, uh, we, we are going to grow and thrive as a body of believers if we're a church that follows Jesus. If we're going to be a church that does the things that God has called us to do, if we're going to be a church that has as our chief aim pursuing Jesus, throwing off the things in our world, that, in our lives that do not honor Jesus, and, and adopting a mindset that is following Jesus with all that we are, if we're willing to do that, we can trust God with the future of Freedom Fellowship. And we can know that we will grow and thrive as a body of believers to look more like Jesus, to be more effective in our ministry. I can promise you that if we follow Jesus, we won't fade off into obscurity. And I can promise you that we won't grow really fast and then implode because of a toxic culture or because of uh, problems behind the scenes. But if we follow Jesus, then we will grow and thrive as a body of believers because we can trust God with our church. If he could provide a 12th apostle when Judas abandoned and betrayed Jesus to give the church the foundation that it needed, if he could do that, he would provide for and care for this local body of believers if we would organize and orient ourselves to follow Jesus. This morning we're going to pray and we're going to sing. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus this morning, then you're no more a believer than Judas was. There may be some of you here this morning, you may have, have signed up and put your name on the roll of a church. You may, have, you may have taken a new member class at one point. You may have been baptized at some point. But if you've never gotten around to worshiping Jesus as God, you've never turned from your idols, you've never turned from your sins, you've never gotten around to worshiping Jesus as Lord of your life, then you are no more a believer than Judas was. You may have had some emotional experiences with Jesus. You may have had encounters with his teachings and with his death and resurrection, but you are not a believer. You are not a follower of Jesus. You're not part of the church. So this morning, as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. And if that's you, you realize whether you've been baptized or not, whether you've been uh, in church your whole life, or this is your first Sunday, whether you've you have, uh, you have joined a new member class, your name is on a roll, or you've never 
been a part of a church, you've never wanted to, whatever that is for you, if you've realized that you've never placed your faith in Jesus and worship him as God, and this morning I invite you to come talk to me about what it means to place your faith in Jesus and to become part of the global body of believers in the church, to be able to say that it is well with your soul no matter what comes against you. And for the rest here who know that you've placed your faith in Jesus, who know that you're part of the church, and ask you to take a second. Don't get up and sing immediately, but take a second and, and pray that God would illuminate and open up your eyes to those four areas of your life, your reliance on scripture, your unity with other believers, your Christ's lightness and your evangelism. And he would show you the areas you're falling short. Because we collectively as a church are made up of individuals brought together. And we will only go so far as all of us individually go together. So I pray that uh, pray that God would open up your eyes to see what God, what, where you fall short in those areas and that you would take care of those, that you would hand those over to him so that we can be a church that is, has as her one aim the pursuit of Jesus. And then stand up and sing and know that you're standing and singing with a church that has as her aim the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. We'll sing. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life that we have in Jesus. I thank you that we can proclaim with boldness that it is well with our souls. I thank you that, that you have brought us together as believers into a, a local body that is just one small part of your global church. And I thank you that, that we know with confidence that you love your church, that you provide for your church, that you care about your church, that you want to see her grow and thrive. Oh God, I pray that we would be a church you can use. I pray that we would be a church that, that pursues you with all that we are. I pray that we would be a church that follows Jesus. I pray that we would be a church that stops getting distracted by the things of the world, that would stop getting distracted by obligations, stop getting distracted by time and money, but we would be a church that pursues you with all that we are. Because I know that when you do that, you will provide for and care for and bless our church. We can trust you with our future. God, I thank you for the future for Freedom Fellowship. And I thank you that it is bright. I thank you for the, the great days ahead of ministry us as we seek to follow you. I pray for those here who, who do not know you. I pray that this morning would be the morning. Today would be the day that they place their faith in you and come join us on our mission to follow you. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.